0: Well, good morning, church. It is uh, great to be back uh, with my own church family. Uh, Last couple weeks have been um, great, too. A lot of traveling. Went to go speak at um, Christ Community Church in Ripon, California. And uh, last Sunday, uh, we were down at uh, Grace Church of the Valley in Kingsburg. And for those of you that might be new or unaware, uh, Grace Church of the Valley uh, really was our sending church. Um, So we were there. Ministering, uh, being trained, the Master's Seminary Extension Campus is there uh, at Grace Church of the Valley, and so we were there before uh, coming here uh, just a few years ago, and so grateful for Brother Nick, always uh, faithful and capable of opening up God's Word, and now I'm excited just to be back and jump back into Philippians with you. But I just want to let you know that Grace Church of the Valley, uh, even though. They don't know you very well, and you don't know them very well. They love you. Uh, They always just want to talk about the church. Uh, They kind of care about me, sure, but they always want to know, hey, how's the church doing? What's going on in the church? How, How is the Lord blessing the church? And so I want to deliver that news to you that they love you, they pray for you regularly. And one of my main encouragements to them last week was for us to just remain unified, Uh, Our body needs to be unified, their church body needs to be unified, and so I'm thankful that Philippians 2 has been helping us think through unity and and, and harmony. In fact, as you think about our time in Philippians, Philippians has been all about that, that, that we would be united together as the body of Christ. It's what Jesus lived for, it's what Jesus prayed for, it's what Jesus died for. For our unity as a body of believers. And it's because our unity in the church is so important that we want to approach this topic once again with sobriety and seriousness. Because when you think about what's at stake here, obviously Christ's glory is more magnified when the church is united, our joy is maximized when the church is united, and especially our gospel witness. As people observe us and and watch the way that we live, our gospel witness uh, is impacted by our unity or our division. So let let me give you the formula. Don't don't follow this advice, but the perfect way to sabotage the church, you want to torpedo our church, just be disunified. Be divisive, complain, uh, be bickering with one another. And that is the perfect formula for destroying the church. But because unity is a precious commodity, We not only want to protect it, we not only want to maintain it, but we want to continue to encourage one another to sustain it. And the best way to do that is by going to the Word of God, hearing what God's Word has to say. So put your eyes back on Philippians 2. Let me just remind you where we've come as we think about just verse 1 and how verse 1 provided us the motivation for our unity. You remember just a few weeks ago, we said the proper motivation, it always begins with God. It begins with God, uh, what he's done, and what he's continuing to do through the gospel. So verse 1 told us what is true. And you say, Dom, what is true? What are the common spiritual realities that we enjoy in our unity here at Grace Church Monterey Bay? Well, it's right there in the text. We have encouragement in Christ. Uh, th- that's to say that we, we have all the encouragement we need. That Christ has already destru- demonstrated that, shown us that. But we also have endearment which means we've been loved by God, perfectly loved by God, passionately loved by God. We have his endowment. And we said that that is the Holy Spirit who comes and takes residence in our heart and comforts us and heals us and teaches us and convicts us and communes with us. We not only have his encouragement, his endearment, his endowment, but we have his empathy. That Christ truly is, he's got splachna, that is, he's got major compassion and Affection toward us. And then we said, because those things are true, verse 2 tells us what to do in response. That that is our motivation. Now what are we to do after receiving all of that blessing and all of that grace while we're to be united? And that was the mandate. After Paul gives the mandate for us to be to our single-minded unity, then he lays out the marks of unity. And those there, in verse 2, it says we're to think the same way. We're to maintain the same love, we're to remain united in spirit, and we're to think on one purpose. And so we've got our mission statements, we repeat it every week, but you say, well, what, what, what specifically are we doing? We're just being the same, right? Not the same in the way that we look or the way that we dress, but the same mission, the same focus, the way that Paul describes it is we have the same heart, the same soul, and the same goal. That's why we wake up in the morning today and come here and gather. To worship the Lord, we're all on the same page. And then the last time we met, we looked at the means of unity in verses 3 and 4. The means by which we maintain this unity is humility. And so we focused on the necessity for us to mature in specific areas. And we mentioned three of them. Christ-minded humility, self-forgetfulness, and others' attentiveness. And again, if we just followed that command... That we would have that christ-minded humility that we would be self-forgetful and others attentive man our marriages would be fantastic our church would be fantastic but the threat to that is the opposite it is not christ-minded humility but it's selfish ambition it's being full of vain glory it's being consumed by self and we said those are the things that we need to mortify so if we are to constantly and conscientiously clothe ourselves with christ-minded humility We need to make sure that we're encouraging one another towards this, going to the Word of God, because if we just have a little small foothold for Satan, he will destroy our church. If we're left to ourselves, we will destroy our church. So that brings us now to verse 5. Set your eyes there in verse 5, which is really a hinge verse in this thought and in this text, as he begins to say that this unity and humility is achieved, but it's achieved a specific way. It's not just, hey, be humble. It's not just, hey, be unified. He's not going to do that. He's going to say, let me show you the perfect example. Let me, let me show you the supreme example of what humility is and how we produce this unity. And so that's what he does in verses 5 through 11. And in 6 and 8, Paul illustrates Christ-minded humility by showing us the greatest condescension. He explains where Christ started And then how far he came down. He just descends further and further and further. And then verses 9 and 10, which we'll look at next week, we don't see his condescension. We see his exaltation. So let's read Philippians 2. And I'm going to read 1 through 11 just to provide some context. And then we'll get right into it. Here's God's word for us. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Fulfill my joy that you think the same way, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied themselves. By taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The Father. May God write these precious and eternal truths on our hearts. Amen. If you're taking notes, our outline is pretty simple. We're looking at two major headings, the command to consider Christ's humility in verse 5, and then we're going to look at the character of Christ's humility in verses 6 through 8. And the way that we're defining the character of Christ's humility is to say this, that his humility was a self-imposed humility. It all comes down to his own consideration and then we're going to look at his self-denying humility. The, the renunciation of all that belonged to him. The self-giving humility. We see that very clearly in the incarnation. And then the self-sacrificing humility, which is best demonstrated in the crucifixion. Self-imposed humility, self-denying humility, self-giving humility, self-sacrificing humility. Those are the four things that we're going to hang our hat on here. The main idea, christ Minded humility is modeled by Jesus himself and is demonstrated in self-imposed, self-denying, self-giving, and self-sacrificial humility. Now, I just want to confess to you that this week as I studied and prepared, I was overwhelmed um, for a couple of reasons. One, I am not worthy to preach the Word of God any week, but especially this week, because the, the profoundness of the theology is just staggering. Uh, you realize that this is one of the most theological, most Christological texts in all of the New Testament. And really, you can get bogged down. There's papers and papers and there's commentaries that uh, talk about all that's here. You have the canonic formula. You say, Dom, when in the world is that canonic formula? What does it mean that Christ emptied himself? That's a huge question the Trinitarian ontology and functionality. What does it mean that God is three in one? The hypostatic union, what's that? What does it mean that Jesus is fully God and fully man? And so you can see it real easily, you open up one can of worms and you just go down that path. But what I want to try to focus our attention on as we kind of make our way to the edge of this Mount Everest theology and Christology is to be mindful that Paul's primary point is to put Jesus forth as the premier example of humility. you got to understand the theology to get there, but I don't want to get lost in the theology that we forget that this is what Paul is doing. This is the whole point of why Paul brings Jesus into the picture. He wants to magnify and he wants to put Jesus on display as the model of the kind of mindset that both you and I need to have. So let's look at the first point, the command to consider Christ's humility. Look at verse five. He says, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's interesting. This is where Paul begins. He begins, literally it says, you all think this thing, or you all think this way. And you say, well, what is Paul referring to? What is the this, or what is this way? It's a reference back to humble thinking in the previous verses. Now, I want to stress this because Paul doesn't start with the do. He starts with think. He wants us to adopt a certain kind of attitude. He wants us to to meditate on a specific kind of mentality. And he wants it to sink deep down into our hearts. In fact, this whole opening section of chapter 2 has been all about right thinking. Thinking. Look at the text. In those previous verses, he says, I want you to think the same way. I want you to have the same mind. He uses words like regard, or your translation might say consider. But he he wants us to make value judgments, to make appropriate calculations. He's calling us to cultivate both an understanding mentally and intentions that are consistent with the goal of unity and humility. And the reason why he does that is because, listen, if we have the right attitude, it's going to lead to the right actions. So you see how it all takes place in the mind. And I I remember just being a young boy, and I'm seeing it more and more in my boys where we just do things and we don't think at all. So I remember one time uh, crank calling the police department because I thought it would be funny. And guess who showed up to the house? The police. And I remember my mom and my dad, "What, what, what were you thinking? I wasn't? I just thought it was going to be funny. Um, it got worse than that. One time I pulled off some of the Christmas tree and put it in paper and tried to smoke it because I saw it on TV. I didn't realize that they were not smoking Christmas tree. That was a horrible idea. And again, what Dom, what were you thinking? Uh, I, I, I wasn't. Careless thinking, foolish thinking, leads to careless and foolish added actions. And so Paul says, look, we need to think a certain way. So he's not first jumping to the external behavior. No, he, he's saying, look, this is an exhortation that we have our minds renewed, transformed. That is what Paul is getting at. We must actively seek and strive after a particular mindset. It's a kind of, an, a kind of thinking that involves all of your facilities, all of your affections, all of your will. Paul... Just in one word, he wants us to be intentional. And you say, why? Well, again, because the mind is the starting point of our actions. If we are going to be humble, if we're going to be unified, we have to have a particular kind of mindset. And look there at the text. This is a collective mindset. Yes, individually, we're to adopt this attitude. But Paul says, you are to have this attitude among yourselves. All of us here all the members of the church are to have this attitude. I think it would be just great if we can snap our fingers and then tomorrow morning we wake up and hey, I'm just considering one another as more important than myself. And if you were to do the same, that would be fantastic, but that is not the way that it works. We're not going to be less self-focused and more others-oriented if we're just passive here. Paul has commanded unity and humility, but now he says, look, what you need is Jesus. It's not going to work your way. You can't pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just get better at this. What you need is to look to Jesus. Look at him. And so verse 5, it really is that hinge that leads us into, from the, from the mandate to the model, he says, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. True humility will not come as a result of looking down on yourself. It's always going to come as a result of looking up to him. And so now, Paul, he's going to do um, something unthinkable here. He's going to take us all the way to eternity past, and he's going to just walk us down this downward progression as we discover Jesus' humility. So here's point number two, the character of Christ's humility, in verses 6 through 8. First of all, we're saying that it is a self-imposed humility. Verse 6, it says, Who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now you say, what what do you mean by self-imposed? And the the answer is, is somewhat obvious. When you and I are humbled, we are exactly that. We are humbled. It happens to us. It's in a passive sense. So last week, uh, was it last week? No, the week before, I'm at Christ Community Church in Ripon, and I make this statement while I'm preaching. It wasn't in my notes. That's where you know it's kind of like, you know, let's be careful with that. So I say, you know, before my Achilles tendon tear, I would have beat all you guys at basketball. I'm trying to illustrate a point here. Well, afterwards, I've got like three or four guys who are like 6'8 and 6'7 and played, you know, at college level and played at better schools than me, I think they just came to kind of test that out and size me up. And so I looked at my wife, and she's like, oh, man. Let me just encourage you, if you don't have a spouse or if you don't have friends to help put you in your place when you kind of get a big head, you need that. I have a friend who likes to quote a passage of Scripture to me. He says, from 1 Corinthians 4-7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it and my wife she doesn't quote verses to me she just gives me a look and I know right away like okay I'm, I'm being proud but that's the difference though you and I we get humbled by by people or by circumstances but that's not the case with Jesus Jesus is not getting humbled he's actively intentionally purposefully willfully humbling himself. And you think about this, if anyone has the right to boast, anyone, it's Jesus. Who is better than him? Who is greater? Who is more majestic? Who is wiser? No, Jesus has the right to boast. But the text says that he didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped. That that root word there, as we look at it, to regard or to count, it means to, to be led or to lead. Jesus leads his thinking a certain direction. It's a deliberate thinking. It's initiated by him without any, side of, any, any type of outside influence. And so Paul says, look, in the same way that he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, you are to regard others as more significant than yourself. Listen, Jesus wants you, Paul wants you to think the way that Jesus thought. And if we do that, then we're living in humility and we're producing unity. If you are to obey God's command to be humble, listen to this, you cannot wait just to be humbled. You can't wait for the perfect situation or circumstance. You can't wait for a feeling or an opportunity. No, you have to make a conscientious decision to follow in Christ's footsteps to live and to love and to serve like he did. And the reason why it's difficult, I'd say even impossible, is because your flesh doesn't want any of that. You don't want to walk in the footsteps of humility. You'd rather just kind of walk along the pride brick road. And the more that you do that, the less you care about people, the more consumed you are with yourself. But listen, Christ, he regarded, he he calculated with his perfect mind the value of God grasping and holding on to the equality of God. And he said, you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it to lower myself to purchase and redeem a people for himself. And I think as he looks ahead to the joy set before him, he endures the cross. And Paul just says, I want you to have the same attitude, that it is worth it for you to regard someone else as more important than yourself. Because it glorifies God, it brings you joy. And at the end of the day, when we're in glory, it will all be worth it. But we're not going to get there if we're not thinking that way. If we're to humble ourselves, we need to make the same kind of mental calculation to say, yes, Lord, it is worth it. So a Christ-like mind is self-imposed humility, and no one no one is, was more other-centered than Jesus. No one was more intentional than Jesus. But it's not just self-imposed. It's also self-denying. Self-denying. Let's continue on with verse 6. It says, Who, although existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And here now we have to address, what does it mean that he denied himself? What did he willingly surrender? And that, again, is a loaded question. But in order for us to answer that question, we first have to answer, well, what was Christ before he did any of this emptying? What, what, what was he? The, this isn't called the Mount Everest text for nothing because the more that you think about it, the more your brain hurts. It, it, is, it is deep. Without a shadow of a doubt, the Bible's clear teaching is that Jesus possesses preexistent deity as well as humanity. If we just take the Word of God at face value, that is what we see. Preexistent deity as well as humanity. If you have the ESV translation, it says that he was in the form of God. But but Paul intentionally used a participle here in the present tense to express an ongoing action. This is a continuous action of existence. The text literally says, existing in the form of God. Not was, but he is existing. Before becoming a man, Jesus was eternally existing. And after becoming a man, he continued existing as God. When Jesus puts on human nature, it's not like he was, okay, split up. 50% God, 50% man, and that's the equation. No, 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 he was 100% God and 100% man. And you say, okay, I get the whole preexistent and divine thing, but if you're looking at the text, Dom, it says that he was in the form of God. And doesn't that make it sound like he is god like doesn't it make it seem like he's just kind of sort of divine and the answer to that obviously is no because when it says form of god it's using this greek word morphe morphe morph is where we get the word metamorphosis when i think of that word form i think of something on the outside it's it's the shape or the structure so some of you you have to wear a uniform at work it's something that you you put on And that is what our English word conveys. It's a mere outward appearance of something. But the Greek word morphe, it refers to something much more than just external appearance. It refers to internal reality. It refers to essential being, the very form of God. For instance, Hebrews 1.3 says this, that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is look, Christ doesn't merely reflect God's glory like the moon does the sun. No, no, no. Christ is the sun. And like the sun, he emanates, it comes from him. Jesus wasn't just godlike in outward form, he was existing in the morphe of God because. In his very essence, in his very being, Jesus is God. Jesus' pre-existent divinity is also clearly seen in that next phrase. Take a look at it. It says, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So uh, I'm back to homeschool teaching, and uh, math just gets harder and harder for me for some reason, you know, the further we are. But one very basic principle is, Um, You know, Kyla, Titus, Juju, here's an equal sign. This is a greater sign. This is a lesser sign. It's pretty simple, okay? So when we look at this text and we see see here that there was equality with God, that's exactly what it means. He's not less than God. He's not God-like. He has always existed as, as God and is equal with God. And that Greek word, isos, not Isis, but Isos, from which we get the word isosceles triangle. So you think about geometry. An isosceles triangle, it's got two equal sides. That's what it's saying. Jesus, Isa, Theu. He is equal with God. And then you have to go back. Well, wait a second, because the Old Testament says some some pretty heavy-duty things. The Old Testament, for instance, in Isaiah 46.9 says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. It's Yahweh. That's what he says. And so what's the conclusion? Well, here comes Jesus. He is claiming that he is equal with God. And if he's claiming that he's equal with God and God says there's only one God, then Jesus has to be out of his mind. Or he has to be God like he says he is. And you flip anywhere in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John. Nick has been taking us through that. And you see very clearly that Jesus believed that he was preexistent. He believed he was divine. Here's one statement: John 8:58. Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? Ego, ami, I am." Blasphemous! That is a blasphemy. You, you're not even 30 years old, and here you're claiming to be older than Abraham. And then, even worse, you're saying you're using the same name of Yahweh. Jesus believed that he was God. John 10.30, I and the Father are what? One. He told his disciple Philip in John 14.9, Philip, you want to see the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you see the audacity of Jesus' claims? Well, it's not audacity because they're true. They're true claims. Even his opponents who hated him who wanted to see him dead, who thought he was making blasphemous claims, recognized what Jesus was doing. In John 5.18, he says says, for this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not was only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And you've heard me say this maybe a couple times before, But the way that you prove the deity of Christ is you just go to the scriptures and you show them the hands. Uh, Hopefully you remember what these are. Hands, honors, attributes, names, deeds, seat. Uh, That comes from that book called Putting Jesus in His Place. But Jesus shares the same honors that are due to God. Glory, praise, majesty, worship, splendor, faith, fear, prayer. The honors belong to Jesus as well as Yahweh. Attributes. Jesus shares the same attributes. He's preexistent. He's eternal. He's uncreated. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's immutable. He shares the same names. The name that is above every name that Paul will say in just a bit. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the, the Lord, Yahweh. He's the Savior. He's the shepherd. He is I am. And the same deeds. Jesus shares the same deeds that only God can do. Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the sustainer. He's the source of all blessing. Jesus forgives sins. He raises the dead. And therefore, it is owing to him the same seat of God, which is to say he has the highest seat. He has the, the only place of sovereign rule, and he has the seat of full and final authority. You cannot read your Bible and say, no, ah, he was just a man. His divinity, his pre-existent divinity is all over the place. And so we say, does Jesus share the same essence of God? And the answer is absolutely. Can he make a legitimate claim to having the same status as God? Absolutely. But look at what the text says. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's not speaking figuratively. I used to think like uh, we can't grasp it. It's like too hard for us to understand but it's very literal. What it's saying here is that Jesus was not clinging to it. He wasn't holding on to it. He wasn't white knuckling it, which means that you can't hold on to something if you don't possess it. So if he let go of it, what does that mean? That he actually possessed it. Jesus is the pre existent divine Son of God. So, Now, with that understanding, kind of laying the foundation, what did Jesus have in his possession? What is it that he gave up? And the answer, I think, comes from John 17, 5, when Jesus says this in his high priestly prayer, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Again, don't get lost in the theology here. Paul's point is really simple. Jesus, being both preexistent and divine, what he did was he temporarily relinquished all of his rights, all of his privileges as God in order to lovingly serve you and to serve me. All of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise belonged to him and him alone. And he willingly let go of all of his entitlements and all of his divine prerogatives, he let that go. And the question is, why? Why would he do that? And the answer is, to serve us. That's Paul's point. Look, church, at what Jesus gave up. He's fully God, equal with God. But he didn't take advantage of the rights that he had. He didn't exploit those rights he didn't exercise them. Instead, he humbled himself, which brings it to a point of application for us. And it is this, no matter what position that you hold, no matter the kind of honor and respect that you think you're due, you need to consider all that Christ gave up to lovingly serve you. So if you're a man of the house. Is that the title that you walk around with? I'm the man of the house. I deserve my respect. If you're the matriarch of the family, are you demanding things from your family members? If you're the big brother or the big sister or the boss of your business or the the captain of your team or a ministry leader, the reality is no degree, no promotion, no achievement will ever elevate you to a seat of honor above Jesus. And here Jesus is, very God of very God, Humbling himself to serve. This is what Paul is driving at. So when you're tempted to demand respect, when you're tempted to want to demand your honor, when you're tempted to not want to give up your time, think about Jesus. Consider Jesus, his self-denying mindset. If he denied himself of everything that he rightfully deserved, in order to serve you, how can we cling so tightly to what we think is owed us? So Christ's humility, it's self-imposed humility. It's self-denying humility, but it's also self-giving humility. We see that in the incarnation. So Christmas, three months away, and we are going to celebrate the incarnation, and rightfully so, but obviously the incarnation is something we celebrate every Sunday, every day, really. But the incarnation it's all wrapped up in that one word right there, that phrase. You see it? emptying. It's the Greek word kanao, and it means to make void. The NIV actually gets it right. It says he made himself nothing. The text is not saying that Jesus emptied himself of his eternal deity. It is not saying that he gave up all of his divine attributes. That is called the kenosis theory, and we do not believe that. That is wrong. He would cease to be God if he did that. It's not that Jesus didn't possess his attributes while here on earth. It's that he didn't access them the way that he could have. Still omniscient. He knows what people are thinking. And he's still all powerful. He calms the storm. He's still got sovereignty. He raises the dead. Okay, He has his attributes. What Paul means is that Jesus deprived himself of his position and the prestige that was due him. That's how he made himself nothing. He set aside his prerogatives as God in order to take on all the limitations of humanity. So listen, again, let's go back to some simple math. He didn't empty himself by subtracting. He emptied himself by adding. And you say, what do you you mean by that? The thing that caused him to empty himself is what he took on. And we see that in the next phrases. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. The text says he took the form of a doulos, a slave. Now, a slave, you're someone else's property. You have no rights. You don't control your life. And the Bible here says that this is how Jesus came to earth. He didn't come with a halo on his head. He didn't come with an angelic entourage on the disciples' shoulders, just kind of prancing around. He came as a slave. Now, obviously, Jesus was a free man while he lived, but yet he subjected himself to the authority of another. He was a slave to the Father's will. And not just the Father's will, but he was a slave to us. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be serve, but to what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And for some of us, that thought might be repulsive. But remember, Jesus, your God, my God, he takes up a towel and he washes the disciples' feet. And all of that, why? To give us a model to follow, a model of servanthood. Now, the only way that Jesus was able to give his life as a ransom for many, as it says in Mark 10.45, 10, was that he had to be a certain kind of man. And that's why Paul makes this very important distinction. Look there at the text. It says he adds, he adds that Jesus was born in the likeness of men. Now, does that mean that Jesus was not really a man? No, no, we've already established that, right? He, he's got hands and feet, Luke five or Luke 2, 52 says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Even after the resurrection, when he appears to his disciples, he makes this staggering statement in Luke 24, 39. He says, see my hands, see my feet. It is me, myself. Touch me. See, for spirit does not have flesh and bones. Christ didn't just return to, to heaven and now he's no longer a man. He will always be 100% man and 100% God. But Christ, while he was here on earth, he was just like us, just like us. You get hungry, guess what? Jesus got hungry. You get tired, Jesus got tired. Jesus experienced the things that we experienced. He bled when he was cut. He had human emotions, human weaknesses, human strength, human limitations, human cravings, even human temptations. Hebrews 2:17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Hebrews 4:15 says he was tempted in every way just as we are. Whatever is true of human nature was true of him with one great exception. You know what that is. He was without sin. He was like man, but he was not sinful like man. And Romans 8 is very helpful here because Romans 8 verse 3 says this, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so we marvel at this. We sang about this earlier. We're marveling at how similar and yet so unlike we are to Jesus. Jesus is the second and better Adam. We sang that. Adam was not equal with God, but you think back to the garden. Adam and Eve, they wanted to be. They wanted to grasp what was not theirs. In contrast, Jesus had it. It belonged to him, and he let it go. You think about Satan. As it says in Isaiah 14, Listen to these words. Let them terrify you. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And the response is, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Satan wanted to go above and beyond what he was able to go, and he was cast all the way down. That is what pride does. Now compare that with Christ. Christ is right where he belongs, in the presence of God, receiving glory and honor and the highest praise, and yet the Bible says he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Listen, church, this this humility that we're observing here, it's the kind of humble-mindedness That produced perfect obedience. It's the kind of humble mindedness that made him an acceptable sacrifice. It's the kind of humble mindedness that reversed the curse and provided a righteousness that you and I could have never attained. Think of the depth to which Christ stooped, leaving the throne of heaven and entering this world. The Creator enters into His creation the eternal now constrained by time, the omnipresent limited by a place, the all-powerful sovereign brought down to a feeble baby in a manger. He went from receiving all the glory and all the praise to the mockery and the shame and the spitting and the despising of men. And again, when we consider that, we have to ask ourselves, do you get upset when you're not getting the kind of privilege you think you are owed? when when maybe the, the status that you're after doesn't come in the timing that you want. Are you ashamed to take up a towel and act like a slave and serve those around you? The Lord laid everything aside to serve us. So when you're at home and you're in an argument with your wife, and you just say, nope, you're wrong, I'm right, and I'm going to make sure you know that I'm right. Who are you acting more like in that situation? Jesus or Satan? Are you imposing in your way your rights, your privileges? This is very, very practical. No one has ever been so rich and became so poor. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. What a gracious and glorious gift the incarnation is. Emmanuel, God with us, not just a man, but a servant, giving himself in humble service and love. So, Christ's humility, it's self-imposed humility, self-denying humility, self-giving humility, and finally, it was self-sacrificing humility. And we see that in the crucifixion. Look at verse eight. It says there, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The whole point here is to try to take you as low as possible. And that's what Paul does. We get to the lowest of lows, Jesus lowered himself by becoming a man. Then he lowered himself even more by becoming a slave. Then he lowers himself even more by dying. And if that wasn't low enough, he dies a death that the Bible describes as the worst kind of death imaginable. It is death on a cross. You realize that there were more honorable ways, more tolerable ways Jesus could have died. He could have been stoned like Stephen. He could have had his head be chopped off like John the Baptist. He could have been jabbed with a sword like James. But instead, the Bible tells us, no, Christ had to be crucified. The king of the universe killed on a cross. The, the commentator David Strain said this, nothing more scandalous could have been imagined in this culture than death on a cross. Any other death might retain some semblance of dignity and worthiness in the eyes of the world, but never crucifixion. Slaves and criminals only could be crucified. And down came deity into humanity. And not just into humanity, but down came deity into slavery. And not just into slavery, down came deity into death, even the unspeakably shameful death and the accursed death, the death that speaks volumes of the rejection and wrath of God. And yet, this is God's sovereign plan. And when again, when you look at the cross, when you think about the cross, you know what thought you should have is I belong up there. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't belong up there, but he took my place. He did that in my stead. He provided a way. Jesus determined to go there, made up his mind to go there. What is it that you dread the most? I hate pain. You know, I told a few of you that I've got something called trichiasis and entropion where my eyelashes go in, so it scratches my eyeball. It hurts big time. Go out in the sun, ah, I can't see. But what hurts more is when they try to fix it because they inject something in my eye and then they start electrocuting the little, the pieces of eyelash Every time I think about, man, I got to go, I start to get in a hot sweat because it hurts so much. Jesus is wrestling at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not just sweating. He's sweating drops of blood. We think about the pain, the suffering, the torments. All of those things don't even compare to what the reality of his torment was, which was separation from God the Father bearing the entire weight of guilt and sin on his shoulders. And you say, why would he do something like that? Because he loves you. Because of his obedience to the Father. And again, you you have to ask yourself, it's not just be humble, do better. No, it's look to Jesus. What did he do? Why did he do it? Is there anything more beautiful, church, than the picture of humility, than the humiliation of Christ? The kind of mind that Jesus had, a mind that was consumed and absorbed with the glory of God and the spiritual good of others. He sacrifices his own life for us. So, listen, even today, apply this principle. The next time that you want to be all about yourself, you're ignoring needs, you're bypassing doing good to someone because it's hard or because it's uncomfortable, remember, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was intentional in doing that for you and for me. Every time you want to make an excuse, think of Hebrews 12.4. Hey, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin, have you? You can die to yourself once again and then again and then again. Why? Because Jesus not only provides that example for you, but he empowers you to do that. One more time, why church did the preexistent divine Son of God humble himself in such a profound way? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he willingly give up his life? Two things, obedience and love. Man, he wanted to obey the Father. Everything he did, everything he said was in complete subjection to the Father the Father's will. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Church, this is not. This life is not about us doing our own thing, exercising our own will. God desires for us to love one another and pour out ourselves for each other. If we're going to follow in Christ's footsteps of humility, we are going to be obedient in the way Jesus was, not my will, but your will, be done. And secondly, it is love for his bride. John said he loved his own. He loved them to the very end. He paid our debt out of love. Our adoption, our redemption that we talked about, our rescue, all of it was motivated out of love. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. Listen, Jesus' humility was self-imposed. He intentionally humbled himself. He did that by denying himself, renouncing his rights and privileges. That was displayed in his self-giving incarnation when he came to earth as man and as a slave. And then the greatest demonstration of his humility is his self-sacrifice, giving up his very life for those he came to serve. The greatest demonstration of humility. And I feel like I didn't even scratch the surface of this text. It is so profound, so significant, so life-transforming. There is no way that you and I can be all about self at the foot of the cross. It's incompatible to see the Savior bleeding and dying on a cross and for us to say, I must have my own way. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death so that you and I would regard one another as more important than ourselves. Let's pray. Father, the the depths of the ocean of truth here is just too much to handle. This is awe-inspiring Christology, but it's awe-inspiring Christology that is meant to transform us to transform our attitude, to transform our actions, to, to cause us to be in wonder and amazement and full of joy. It's the kind of truth that causes us to sing, and it's the kind of truth that causes us to want to give our lives fully and faithfully to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, would you please impress these truths deep down into our hearts? May we not walk away from this unchanged, unimpressed, untransformed, Lord, we thank you for the power of your word, for what your word promises to do. We thank you that you are working out this salvation in us. So as we work it out in fear and trepidation, you are causing it to take its root in our hearts. We pray that you would produce great fruit, fruit that others see and acknowledge that you are great, that you are worthy, that you are worth laying our life down. Father, please continue to strengthen our church, help us to be united, help us to live in harmony, help us to be quick to repent, help us to hate and despise and repudiate any thoughts that would be divisive, keep us from bitterness, keep us from selfish ambition, keep us from pride. Lord, help us to walk in the steps of our humble Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.